I Brain Map by Rita McInnes. Chapter 14 Orientation and the AND Pathway. In this chapter, I discuss orientation and the AND Pathway in detail because they are at the heart of integration and underpin iBrainMap. I explain relevant theories and hypotheses about the brain that I've developed in working with clients, especially in the context of iBrainMap, the techniques I've developed, AIRS and I AM techniques, and through studying available research. But because of the scope of this book, I've simplified my theories and hypotheses into threads of ideas in order to invite your curiosity so you can take the ideas and run with them to investigate for yourself if you choose. Orientation By orienting or orientation, I'm referring to how you meet an experience, how you are in relation to an object, situation, experience, person or anything else. This includes which senses you use to detect something, where you are in relation to it, what context or environment you're in, and even how you hold your head in relation to your shoulders. These are all factors of orientation. Whether you habitually orient to your internal or the external environment, to either or, or to both internal and external is part of orientation. And which body memory maps are associated with an experience or stimuli, and which body memory maps are associated with an experience or stimuli, and what your mental representations of that experience are. Because after repeated exposure to a situation, the brain tends to orient towards your memory map of experience rather than orient to the moment-to-moment emerging phenomenological experience. We call this learning or lazy, efficient brain. Orientation includes all levels of experience and I'm proposing that it underpins all brain functioning. Before we can respond to anything, we have to attend to it and that involves our orientation to it. What we attend to, how we attend, which memory maps the brain uses in response, are all the invisible threads of orienting that define how we appraise, interpret, and then respond to any given stimuli. Common Maps of Orientation Through repeated experience, the brain develops recognisable maps that orient us, such as glass half full, glass half empty, turning towards, approach, turning away, withdrawal, looking forward to something, getting on top, getting on with things, blaming or finding the problem, solving the problem, are some examples. How we orient to another person will influence how we see them. Do I focus on how I am different to you or how we are the same? If I focus on what you do or your family of origin, I may have a different experience of you than if I ask you how you feel about X or Y or which footy team you barrack for or who you vote for. How you orient in the morning can affect your mental state and the tone of the day. Do you focus on the fight you had with your partner the night before? the fact that the neighbour's dog woke you at 4am again, the big meeting at work that you haven't done enough prep for, 
Who will take little Tommy to his dentist appointment? Or on the holiday to Europe you're planning? Or feeling overwhelmed and exhausted? Or all of the above? Most of us don't notice how we orient our attention. It happens habitually or in response to the demands of the environment. Orientation is mostly invisible and layered as water is to the fish, like the intention behind an action that gives the brain a specific message. These invisible layers of orientation, such as the difference between an orientation that is accepting or avoiding, can affect everything. We develop habits of orientation like a series of maps based on repeated experiences and responses that the brain uses to orient to the world. Changing your orientation from the inside can be difficult. It's like the eye trying to see itself. You need a mirror. Relationships are that mirror. Psychotherapy can be a mirror. A way to reflect on your way of seeing things. Most therapeutic approaches are inherently reorienting. CBT, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, for instance, orients attention away from the event or trigger and orients you towards your thinking or interpretation of the event and your behaviour. Mindfulness is one of the most effective techniques because it teaches you to become aware of your orientation and also how to reorient attention. Orientation includes intention and attention. Orientation is a specific neurological function that involves the hippocampus, but is often referred to in the literature as navigation. The term navigation or spatial navigation is too limited for describing what I call orientation, but is likely the same function. The term navigation doesn't recognise how essential orientation is in brain function because most of the focus or orientation in brain science has been on spatial navigation in a physical environment, usually of rats, and on memory function when the hippocampus is studied. But orientation is most important for brains in the wild because it directs what the brain orients to or doesn't orient to, and therefore how we know the world. It's also likely that orientation underpins learning and memory. But to understand orientation, we need to go back to the beginning. The orienting reflex response and imprinting. I don't use the term orienting response because that term is used to refer to a more specific aspect of what I'm referring to as orientation, although it may be the same function. In the orienting response, attention is drawn to stimulus that's novel, significant, predictable or intense. The other aspect to this is habituation, which refers to the process whereby a stimulus that's repeated will lose its salience and be ignored after a time. The orienting response is orientation observed from the outside in response to external stimuli. I'm suggesting that orienting is occurring continually as the brain orients to internal and external cues and stimuli. I'm proposing that the way the brain orients habitually directs attention and therefore how we experience, perceive, interpret and respond to the world. 
I also think the imprinting that Conrad Lorenz observed in hatchlings as they attached to the first moving object they encountered, usually mother, though in Lorenz's work they attached to him, is also the same function as what I refer to as orienting. I'm suggesting that imprinting and even attachment are built on the orienting function of the brain. In the beginning. When you were born, your primary orientation was through the body. This is so fundamental to human experience that it's often overlooked. The body is to the brain what water is to the fish. At birth, the world was sensory overload for your delicate system. Smells, sounds and cold air assaulted your senses and you started to bawl. But then you smelt something familiar, a big, soft, warm thing you'd later call mother. You oriented to her and could forget everything else. Your mother was a one-stop shop for all your survival needs. Ah, your brain body could relax. At birth, you didn't have the brain equipment for anything much more than very basic survival and some interpersonal blueprints or instincts. If you had all the equipment, your brain would have been too large to be birthed. But the hippocampus was already 40% mature at birth, providing enough equipment to orient to mother. This capacity to orient to mother was all you needed to survive, and mother could do the rest, kick-started by a flood of oxytocin so she'd feel all gooey at the sight and smell of you and want to protect you. In that critical period after birth, your brain was imprinted with mother through your senses, particularly smell, taste and touch, because your other senses were still underdeveloped. Very rapidly, your baby brain would develop the mechanisms for other sensory recognition Learning and attachment built on this capacity to orient. Jack, orientation. When Ted was tiny and he was hungry or in pain, how did you know? He screamed and his little body would sort of curl up in distress. Yeah, I get what you mean. It's like his body expressed exactly what he was feeling, like his body was his brain. No divide. Yep, that's exactly what I mean. Before his mind developed and he had any understanding of what he was feeling, he just felt and his whole body responded. He let us know loud and clear when something was wrong. He had a great set of lungs on him from day one. Then, through orienting to his mother's brain, his baby brain started wiring itself, mapping patterns of experience of the world, especially safety and fear to begin, which was initially about food, his brain started learning patterns of response to the environment based on repeated experience and pruning away neurons that weren't used. Pruning? Yeah, pruning is the term used to describe the loss of neurons in the first few months after birth, capacities that aren't needed. At birth, the brain is like a blueprint of possibility, but then what gets repeated is wired in and what isn't experienced or needed falls away. A bit like muscles. Use it or lose it. Yep, same principle. And Ted's little brain was oriented to Katie and you to get all this experience, like growing a brain. 
and your house is the garden. His little brain couldn't cope with everything in the environment at once. He needed to develop this after birth or his brain would have been too big to be birthed through the usual canal. His brain could ignore most of the stimuli in the environment and just orient to mum. As his brain developed, he could take in more and more of the environment. Like Thomas. Yeah. As I was saying, in the beginning, the baby brain's primary orientations are around food and comfort, pleasure and pain and safety. These are the foundation for all other maps about the world. So what about my brain? If mum was scared because of the way my father treated her, my brain got that message? Yes, Jack. So your body brain wired in fear, danger, along with safety of closeness to your mum. But the good news is that your brain is plastic. You can change these early maps, and I think the fastest way to do that is to change your orientation, which I think is more fundamental than attachment. Yeah, but isn't it all wired in? Yes, it's wired in, but with awareness and curiosity, you can give the brain body different feedback and create new maps of experience that let the brain know that everything is safe now. But what about all the fear stuff I got from mum's brain? Well, along with that fear, your mum was a good enough mother and gave your brain sufficient nourishment and safety and responded to your needs. That's how you love Katie and Ted, because you've got a love map. A love map, Rita. Is that a bit too fluffy? Well, it could be a movie or maybe a book, but but it wouldn't be something I'd read. The point I want to make is that those early body memory maps of experience have a particular orientation. Threat danger is a primal orientation But when that was mediated by your mother, your brain was able to develop some maps of safety. I'm scared and I'm safe because mum's here maps. If you're alive, you probably got this much. Then later came the attachment maps, which are more complex brain-body maps of experience. But I don't get why it's so important whether you call it orientation or attachment. Because I think it's much harder to change patterns of attachment and easier to change orientation. And orientation is much more primal than attachment. And? Well, when you drop into survival mode, I need to orient or reorient your attention rather than engage interpersonal brain function or attachment because you will only push me away. Or you might grab onto me, attach, rather than creating the conditions for the brain to integrate. This happens because while you're in survival mode, your interpersonal brain function is disconnected and drops into more basic brain function. So when I'm activated, I still have the capacity to orient, but not to attach or connect with someone? Yeah, often that's what people experience. It's like the brain reverts to basic functioning, like baby brain, which includes the capacity to orient, but not the more sophisticated functions of attachment and interpersonal functioning when it's in survival mode. So it's unlikely I'll be able to help you reconnect through interpersonal contact. 
First, I focus on orienting or reorienting. Otherwise, you can stay stuck in survival brain. Is that why I stonewall Katie when I feel crap, stressed out, activated? Yeah, that could be one reason. And it's very hard to override that wiring of wanting to withdraw when it's associated with survival and feelings of threat alarm. So instead of trying to talk to Katie, I what? How do I orient or reorient? Well, I'm going to teach you a technique that's based on orienting or reorienting called the AIRS technique. You orient through the senses, usually to here and now, so your brain gets the message that there's no current threat. Count pomegranates or listen to birds. Engaging the orienting function brings the hippocampus online. So you've So you've entered the integration zone. That brain functioning, which also hooks up to the left prefrontal cortex, everyone in the brain family is online, you could say. So when I drop into activation, all my interpersonal equipment isn't available. And I can't make contact until I orient or deactivate because I'm oriented to threat. Is that it? That's it, Jack. That's why orientation is fundamental to this process of integration. Orientation is the missing link between activation and integration. And it's a more accessible brain function to mediate distress than interpersonal or cognitive functioning, which are unavailable when the brain drops into survival mode. Attention is to orientation what emotion is to mood. Attention is how you focus awareness in any moment, what you focus on. As you repeatedly attend in a certain way, your brain builds memory maps based on repeated experience, especially about what's significant, a sense of place or placement. The context for experience is all part of the map. These are your habits of attention and are central to orientation, Some of your most basic orientations, often invisible because they are assumed, were developed through the earliest contact with your mother and how she responded to you and your different experiences. These are your earliest body memory maps. Meet and. And is a particular orientation. Your first and pathway was between your body and your mother. As I said, your primary orientation was and is through the body. Having mother to orient towards when you felt scared, overwhelmed or hungry gave your little brain the message, I feel scared, starving, in pain and there's that big, soft, warm, smelly thing called mother, suck, suck, burp, pat, pat. Now I'm warm, clean, fed, phew, everything's okay and some delicious chemicals flooded your bloodstream. Ooh, this is good, and you grinned up at mum with your big, wet, toothless grin and wriggled your fat legs. In the beginning, before your mother map was established, your mother needed to be holding you for your brain to get the message that it was safe, that everything was okay. But as your experience of mother was repeated consistently mother equals safe, 
Mum only needed to come into the room and speak in that ridiculous way, goo-goo, and your body brain opened up the memory map of everything's okay, mum's here, and your body relaxed and you stopped screaming. This was the beginning of the AND pathway. Your brain was able to move through a distressing experience because it had a larger map that told you everything would be okay. If your distress was too high, a nightmare say, then your mother might have needed to revert to the more basic model and hold and rock you because you disconnected from your higher order maps and dropped into baby brain. Until mum could soothe and comfort you to downregulate, your brain couldn't make contact through visually seeing her or just hearing her voice. Your mother had to revert to the primal language system touch and contact with your distressed little body because higher order functioning wasn't available, not until you were more settled. The AND pathway as a unique state of orientation. The AND pathway is a specific orientation and at the centre of brain integration. It's what the brain does when it's integrating, interconnected, interacting, in flow. When it's stuck on stress or overwhelm, it's split. There is no and. The I-brain map and the airs and interactive mindfulness or I am techniques imitate this brain state of interconnectivity. The I-brain map provides the brain with a map that offers a different orientation to the experience of activation and through integration a whole brain inclusive and interconnected and interactive orientation. The AIRS technique and I am replicate the and orientation, which is the healthy state of the brain when it's not stuck on stress and encourages integration and interconnectedness. Jack, and, or, yes, but. I feel scared but I'm still here is different to saying I feel scared and I'm still here. Isn't that just semantics? Well, language reflects subtle differences in our relationship to things. You say it, Jack. I'm here but... No, I feel scared but I'm still here. I'm scared and I'm still here. Uh Uh-huh. Notice you just dropped the I feel in the second one. Even that is a shift in orientation. In the I feel statement, you're with the feeling of being scared, but in the I'm scared statement, you're more in the feeling. The difference between with and in is orientation. That's orientation. It's almost invisible. In fact, a giveaway sign of how you are orienting is the language you use. It's not the language itself, but what it points to. I sort of get it, but something's missing. Okay, let's take that as our how. Uh, Take what? The way you just questioned me then or invited some curiosity. Okay. That's your how. You're curious about what I'm saying, right? You don't quite get it and you want to know more. You could call that an orientation. 
Your interest or curiosity is an orientation. I'm with you so far. Probably the easiest way to understand it is to compare it to other orientations. So if another guy, let's call him Joe, was here, he might not like vague ideas. And instead of staying curious and working through his confusion by asking questions, he might just shut off or tell himself, I don't know what she's on about, she's crazy or something like that. Another person, say Josh, might orient to, I have to know, I have to get it right. Sometimes that's what I do, right? Yeah, sometimes. And then a guy called Jake might have to tell me that I'm wrong. Each would come at it differently and their orientation would dictate their reaction, even their perspective and how they attend. Okay, that makes sense. So it's kind of the personality and kind of what's happening now and some other stuff and all that goes into the pot and you get orientation. Something like that? Yeah, something like that. Hey, like the blind men and the elephant. Yeah, the blind men and the elephant is a good metaphor, except that I'm saying not all blind men are the same. Each of us already carries maps of orientation that direct us in how we focus attention not just what we focus attention on, but whether we approach with curiosity or defensively or perhaps withdraw in fear or from boredom and disconnection. It's complicated. You need a 3D version of the blind man and the elephant, and it would need to be interactive, of course. Of course, Jack, yeah. You have a curious brain that likes to play given a chance, which is why we can discuss these things. But my brain can shut down and not want to come out to play when I'm with a brain that says, prove it, a critical brain or a know-it-all brain. Well, that's what happens to me with short Pete. It's like everything shuts down and I go into stupid mode. Good insight. So let's work with that to see if we can create a different orientation to your boss. So you don't drop into mm, Dumbo brain. The Old Story of the Blind Men and the Elephant There was once a group of three blind men travelling together in India when they came upon an elephant standing in the road. Each of the blind men grabbed hold of a different part of the elephant and exclaimed that their experience was the truth. It's like a leathery snake, said the first who had hold of the elephant's tail. No, it's a great column, called another, who had hold of the elephant's leg. It's like a giant serpent coiling, said another, who had hold of the trunk. All day the blind men argued about who held the truth of the beast they could not see. Finally, the elephant strolled off to eat some straw, and the blind men sat on the dusty road arguing about who was right. Jack, how orientation changes. Can you give me an example of orientation or how it changes? Okay. Let's say you have an orientation to being less than or not as good as other people. Perhaps you go into a please and appease response or what if you have a blaming who did this or victim who did this to me orientation. When something goes wrong in your life, you automatically look around for someone or something to blame. Hmm, that might be getting a bit close to the bone, Rita. 
Mm. So something goes wrong and you automatically orient externally, scanning to find what's wrong and what or who to blame. Isn't that helpful? If there's a problem like a flat tyre, I can fix it, right? Yeah, good point. This orientation of finding the problem and fixing it works very well when it comes to the mechanical world, but not when it comes to relationships or your internal experience. We could call it orienting to what's wrong or perhaps fix it or blaming. All similar but slightly different, but the orientation is to other. So my orientation is outside myself. Yeah, and it's a common orientation if there's been trauma because your system is often vigilant, scanning for threat. And when something goes wrong, this scanning is ramped up until you find the problem. Well, it works for me. But does it, Jack? It's helpful if you can fix that other, like a flat tyre, but we can't fix or change other people. We should be able to. Can you change your boss? Nope. God knows I've tried. The only thing you have any choice about is how you respond to his behaviour. But that means first shifting your orientation. But that feels like I'm just letting him get away with his bad behaviour. I didn't say anything about what to do. The first and most important shift is shifting orientation or shifting attention. From what I've seen, this is the fastest way to change the brain. Intentionally shifting your orientation engages the hippocampus so you have the potential for integration and brain change. While you habitually orient the same way, the brain is just on autopilot and no change is likely to occur. But can't I think my way out of it? Is that a change in orientation? Mm, Great question. Possibly. If your brain is interconnected, that is, If the hippocampus is online and you're in the eye zone, then you can probably use your thinking brain. But often your orientation is already focused in your thinking brain while ignoring the lower brain activation. But it's the lower brain that's driving the distress or activation and the overthinking. Of course. And if my lower brain's on alarm, I'm doing that splitting thing and those two aren't communicating. The little guy, Ted Brain, is running the show, right? Right. So changing your orientation probably means something other than focusing on big brain thinking, or at least initially, which is likely to be in a spin if there's lower brain activation. First, you need some new way to orient, something different to orient to, another point of orientation. I propose you orient to the eye-brain map. But there are other things you could orient to, and these might change over time. And I'm giving the brain a message to wake up because something new is going on here, because I'm reacting differently instead of in the same old Ted brain way. You got it. That's why the first step to brain change involves changing the orientation. Otherwise, the brain will operate on autopilot and nothing much will change. Mindfulness is the best tool for this. It's like a muscle in changing orientation, whereas trying to think your way out of things may not help if that is your usual orientation, which is for most people in our culture. We just get hooked into a rationalisation of lower brain distress, but nothing changes. 
Like I keep blaming the boss instead of considering what options I have. I go over and over the same old arguments in my head, but nothing changes. Exactly, Jack. The AND pathway, the I-brain map and the I-zone. By establishing an AND pathway during activation, you change your orientation to activation and therefore the experience of activation. Interweaving the old map with new understanding and experience. As we say, change the experience and you change the brain. Because we want to encourage brain integration, not just take away the symptoms of distress, it's essential to cultivate an AND orientation. In other words, what you do is less important than your intention or how you do it, like the way you approach the wave. When you invite curiosity and attention with an intention of moving through rather than fixing or stopping, you give the brain different feedback which encourages integration. Creating an AND pathway changes your orientation by maintaining contact with the experience of distress rather than pulling away or trying to stop it, which, as you know, is likely to alarm the brain and perpetuate the pattern. AND creates connection, replicating the brain function of integration. Turning towards I am. Turning towards the internal experience of distress or activation tells the brain it's no longer threatening. When you feel threatened, you turn away, run away, shut down, or you might stare fixedly at the threatening experience if you're dissociative. That's how your system is wired to respond during the threat. And if you continue to pull away or fixate attention, the brain reads it as current threat because nothing's changed. Gently turning towards, softening attention to be curious, bending in close as a child bends into a flower to see the beetle on the petal, gives the brain, including the lower brain, the message that the threat has passed. This is possible in session because I can continually reorient attention when it's stuck. And when a person feels overwhelmed, I consistently make contact as they experience the internal distress, creating an AND pathway. They feel overwhelmed and they can hear my voice and respond to my questions. Turning towards and bending in close, reorient, creating an AND pathway. This is the principle underpinning the process of interactive mindfulness, or I am, that I use in the session with clients. One reason we may not fully understand the orienting function in the brain is because observing a brain in a specific context, such as a research laboratory, establishes a particular orientation. But the brain's capacity to orient in the everyday is what allows us to have such rich and complex lives because we can shift attention, orient and reorient to the internal and external environment. The brain needs to make instant moment-to-moment decisions about how to orient based on maps of experience. Until we can observe a brain in the wild, It's unlikely we are even close to understanding how the brain orients and reorients when left to its own devices. A key player in all of this is the hippocampus and probably other brain functions involved in interactive brain mapping. 
Most problems with mental well-being stem from some interruption in the brain's capacity to orient. One obvious example is Alzheimer's disease. The person can perform perfunctory tasks if they are directed to do so, that is, oriented in a particular way. But their brain is unable to orient to the environment and then to the relevant body memory map to make a cup of tea, for instance. But put a cup of tea in their hand and they'll drink it because the brain can orient to the drink the cup of tea map based on specific cues, cup in hand. It's as if the brain is working from fragments or disconnected scraps of memory. The hippocampus is affected in Alzheimer's and almost all disruptions to mental and emotional wellness. Other ANDs in treatment models. Although known by other names, the AND pathway is central to several other therapeutic techniques used for treating post-traumatic stress. Babette Rothschild and others call it dual awareness, and Peter Levine uses a term called pendulation, which involves moving attention back and forward between two experiences. The AND pathway is central to EMDR, eye movement desensitisation reprogramming as the clinician invites the client to hold the trauma memory in their awareness and, at the same time, watch the pattern of finger movements with their eyes. Mindfulness is the ultimate and. When you observe without reacting, attending to something with curiosity, seeing your experience as it is, not based on what you think it is or what you wish it was, but seeing it like a child. 